All right. Well, hey, come on back to your seats and uh, open up your Bible here. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, John or Scotty back there will get you a Bible. Raise your hand. And you're going to want to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 8. You're going to want to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 8. And uh, as we continue down the path of the Old Testament, book by book, verse by verse, Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in the book of Job. So if you've wanted to know about Job and what that means, well, come next week and we'll try to shed some light. But I don't think you could know the story of Esther if you didn't know that the nation of Israel split and there was a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom in the Old Testament. Who here, does, who here knows that? <laughs> Good. Because if you don't know that, I don't know how you know this book. And in 586 B.C., that's the most important date of the Old Testament, in my humble yet accurate opinion. Oh, she always goes all, like it's something really bad. <laughs> 586 B.C., you got to know 586 B.C., that's when Babylon came down and took the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, sorry, Judah, which were comprised of Benjamin and Judah, and took them up to Babylon. And they were there for a number of reasons, mostly because they turned their face from the Lord. I mean, they didn't obey. And up in Babylon then, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Babylon gets overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. And that's important because there's this king named Cyrus. And probably, although this isn't in the Bible, but this is a you know, maybe this happened. You, you be a Berean and search this. Nope, no map. Uh, <laughs> we got a lively crowd here tonight. This is like being at a comedy show or something. <laughs> this is great. I like the interaction. Well, anyway, the, uh, 586 B.C. takes them up there. Babylon, Babylon turns into the Medes and Persians. And somebody showed King Cyrus the prophecies that were in Isaiah that said he would make a decree and allow the, uh, uh, the Jews to come back and to build their temple. Mo many people believe it was Daniel himself, but whatever. Somebody did, and Cyrus makes this decree, and then all of a sudden, Nehem, uh, a Zerubbabel, sorry, Zerubbabel brings this group of people back to start building the temple. You remember, they start, they stop, some prophets come in, Haggai and uh, Zechariah, and they say, what are you doing? Let's get going. And they prompt them. They get going. They build the temple. You know this. Ezra's involved. There's some reforms. And then the book of Nehemiah is, no, we're going to go back. Nehemiah's going to come, and he's going to help build up the walls and the, uh, you know, the city because it was in rubble. And then we get this picture of Esther, although Esther happened in, in that Ezra time, <laughs> but it happened up in the exilic place, Babylon or Medo-Persia, right? Are you everybody tracking with me? And so uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you're seeing what happened to the, the remnant that returned to Israel. But in Esther, you're seeing what happened to the Jews who remained in Persia. Isn't that interesting? And many commentators would say that... <laughs> You know, they got really comfortable up there in Babylon. They got comfortable, the Jews did, and so they didn't return when the edict was you can return. And they, 
give them, you know, a hard time in the commentaries about these folks staying there because they were comfortable and not being concerned with the the things of the Lord. Well, that is true, I think. I think that is true to agree. But the book of Jeremiah says that when they went into exile, they were to be good citizens where they were. And so they were trying to be that, but they got comfortable, right? Most people say. So only a, a, a handful, relatively, you know, more than a handful, but not a big percentage of the Jews returned. And so now we're dealing with what happened with this gal named Esther. And her name, remember, can mean myrtle tree or hidden. H-I-D-D-N-E-N if you're not hearing me right. And you know the story here. What a story we've been encountering here where the king of Persia, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, I'm not saying it right, but you guys can you know, say it the right way when you're reading it. He has a queen when we start this book, and her name's Vashti. And she has to be out of there if God's going to get his purposes done. And you know through a lot of different circumstances, that queen, Vashti, is deposed or taken out, you know, removed. And through a lot of other circumstances, God bless you, a lot of other circumstances, then Esther comes in and becomes the queen. But that's amazing because Esther's a Jewess, and she's married now to the king who's a Persian, right? And you remember this, the whole story between the two prime ministers. There was a prime minister that the king Artaxerxes appointed, and his name was Haman, and he's evil Haman, right? He wants to exterminate or annihilate the Jewish population. And so he gets the king just to kind of listen to him to say, you know, I've been giving a lot of money to your campaign here, and uh, I'll keep continuing to do that. But I want to make an edict that we wipe out all the Jews. And the, guy, the king gives him the signet ring, so you're all tracking with me, right? And we stopped last week when, because of a number of circumstances, including insomnia, God gets his purposes done in that Mordecai supplants or takes over for Haman because Mordecai is one who had saved an assassination plot against the king several years earlier. It was written down in the books, and they never rewarded him. And you know that whole story, how Mordecai then comes. Haman actually gets hanged, but he doesn't really get hanged. It says gallows, but we know from extra-biblical sources they impaled them on these gallows that they have, these 75-foot gallows. They impaled these people up there. That's what the Medo-Persians did. So Haman's out of the picture, and now Mordecai's the prime minister. That's kind of where we uh, begin in chapter 8 after uh, Haman has been hanged, okay? So we're going to get right to it, and we're going to read a few verses here in Chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Esther. Here's the word of the Lord. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, that's important, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor in his sight and the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please, and the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, governors, princes of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Pretty complex, huh? And fast. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, verse 10, sealed it with the king's signet ring, sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the kings permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. That's important. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, underline that, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Hasarius, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all the people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Sushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Let's pray. Lord, we need help to understand what this says and what it's saying to us here in 2021, Lord. We're so thankful your word never changes. It's, so it's just as relevant now as it was then, and we're thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, isn't this the great irony, the great reversal? It's Shakespearean, isn't it? The exact same signet ring now, the exact same signet ring that was used to make the decree earlier in the book to annihilate the Jews is now on a Jewish hand, and it's going to make a decree to combat 
the first decree or edict. And you say, I, I think it's really important that you understand what was happening here. And that is this. And it says it here, and it's referred to in chapter 1 and some other places in the Bible like Daniel. When these ancient kings made a law, they could never be revoked, different than our system of government. Our system of government, you vote in one political party, they put in some laws. As soon as the other one gets in there, you write 31 executive orders, and the first day you get in there, you get that out, and then you go to Congress, and you start getting the rest of the stuff out, right? Okay, that didn't happen back here. You know why it didn't happen back here? Because these kings were seen as deity. They could do no wrong. So they couldn't write a false decree. You see that? And so, and, 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 and it's weird to our mind. Don't you think it's kind of strange to our mind what's going on here? Wouldn't you just say, if you were the king, wouldn't you just say, oh, we signed that a few months ago? Ah, just sign one that's just exactly the opposite and we'll take care. Wouldn't, wouldn't you just think that would be it? So there must be something else that the Lord wants us to get at here tonight. So file that away. Here, Mordecai comes before the king. Esther tells him he's related to her. This is the first time that the king, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, knows that Mordecai, now the prime minister, and his wife, Esther, those two are related. And it's now time that he knows they're, the, or they're Jews, right? So they take off this signet ring, which he gave to Haman. Now he gives it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now look what Esther does. Esther appeals to the king. She does so, uh, uh, she does so, in a very uh, passionate, empathetic, or, uh, compassionate, uh, zealous, broken way. Wouldn't you say? She, you can see, is broken. Listen, folks, I'm going to say it so you all know it. She's broken for a condemned people. She's broken at the feet of the king for people who are going to be condemned, who are, who are condemned. You see that? She has wealth, power, beauty, uh, uh, poise, grace, clothes, cars, image. She has everything. But the most important thing to Queen Esther is a people that are condemned. So much so that she risks her life again. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't they married yet? But remember, he has lots of wives. And they see their kings differently. And she can only enter when that scepter is lowered and he says come on in if she makes a wrong move in this culture she's toast so she risks her life one more time and it's not really that great in these ancient times to be falling at the feet or to do something in poor taste to the king you, you, you've heard the stories of the royals in England. You, how many times do I curtsy? What's a curtsy look like? How do I bow? It, what, where's my fork go? You, you Right? Well, this is worse because if they mess it up, they're dead. And here you see this passion of this girl. She speaks again to the king. She goes again. She, nothing's going to stop her. She falls down at his feet and implores him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite. Time out now. If you haven't been here, you need to know this. Agagite is a descendant of the Amalekites. 
In Exodus 17, when the nation of Israel is moving in through and through the wilderness, the Amalekites do something that God didn't forget about. They started to pick off the people at the back, the poor and the lame and the sick, and they murdered them and killed them, and they wouldn't share their um, uh, goods with them to keep them safe and healthy. And God never forgot it. In fact, with King Saul, he asked, he was asked by the Lord through Samuel to go and to annihilate the Amalekites. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God uses the nation of Israel to meet out, to dish out divine judgment. But oh, don't get all hung up on whether that's moral or not. Sometimes God dishes out divine judgment on the nation of Israel themselves. In fact, we're right in the middle of a period in which judgment was placed upon the nation of Israel. He took them out in judgment, right? But the Amalekites did this, and Saul was asked to go annihilate them. And do you remember this? He goes, but, you know, he doesn't really kill the king, and then he sees some choice livestock, and he, oh, well, let me get some, you know, some lamb and build up my kingdom. So he brings it back, and Samuel says, wait a minute, I thought you were supposed to knock everybody out. Why do we hear some of the sheep bleeding, bleating, making sounds? And you know the story. God wasn't happy about that. And in fact, when Saul was killed, an Amalekite came and said he was the one who thrust him through. Remember that? By the way, Amalekites or Agagites, Haman, is always a picture of our flesh in the Bible. And what was uh, God telling us through the story of Saul? To crucify or mortify the flesh. Don't play around with it. Don't just let a little bit hang around. Crucify those desires of the flesh. We remember that, right? Well, Saul wasn't successful in doing what he was supposed to do. Everybody tracking? And now we see all the way up in Babylon this Haman who's an Agagite, he's finally killed, but he hadn't been before, and he'd given trouble to the Jews. In fact, he'd written a decree that all of them in the provinces could be annihilated. The flesh always bounces back, doesn't it? If it's not crucified. Well, here she is, and she's at the feet of the king to counteract the evil of this Agagite. And the king held out this scepter. Okay, it's nice. You can come now. So Esther comes and stands before him, and then intercedes, folks. If it pleases the king, and if I've found favor, etc., etc., let's write the uh, letters to revoke this scheme devised by Haman, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews. But because she couldn't stand to see the evil that was going to come to the condemned people, her condemned people. Or how can I endure to see this destruction? But the king said in verse 7, Indeed, I've given Esther the house of Haman. Here it is. And they have hanged him on the gallows. They'd given the treasures over. We see from a prior chapter. Haman himself has been killed or impaled because he tried to land his or lay his hand on the Jews. Now, this is an amazing principle we see. It comes right out of Psalm 37, verses 34 through 36. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you in the 
uh, or exalt you to inherit the land. Then the wicked will be cut off and you shall see it. That's Psalm 37, 34 through 36. Well, if you keep going, you yourselves write a decree as you please in the king's name and seal it with that signet ring for whatever is written in that name and sealed with the king's ring, no one can revoke that. So Mordecai is really smart. He has the wisdom of the Lord. He knows that he can't just say, oh, there, here's a decree to annihilate the Jews. We'll just write a secondary one uh, chronologically later in time that supersedes that one. Doesn't work in their community. So he's very smart. He has the wisdom of the Lord. Look what he does. He says, oh, wait a minute. We can't do that. But in legalese, and by the way, in the Hebrew here, it does seem to be written in legalese. It's fun to read, isn't it? And so they say this. In the third month, which is the month of Shavan, that's chapter 9. This is around June, the late part of June, 474 474 B.C., right, on the Jewish calendar. And their Jewish calendar begins in April, and the uh, first edict was made in April. So I'm just trying to give you a time frame. It's from April to June. And remember, it was a year hence, so it's somewhere between eight, nine months they have to prepare themselves for what's coming. Did you catch what I'm saying? So... He commands them to all these people, to every people in their own language. He wrote up in the name of King Hesarius, and the letters permitted the Jews in every city to gather together and to protect their lives. That's important, folks, because a lot of people point to this story and say, what is God doing here, annihilating a whole people? You've got to understand what's happening here. First, you need the backstory of the Amalekites. But second, what you've got to see is here, what God's endorsing here is self-defense. Is it right that the Babylonians ripped the, uh, uh, the, the men, men and women of Judah out of their own country? Is it right that they had made this edict in the first place? And here, Mordecai just comes and says, we're going to uh, put a, uh, an edict in to counterbalance this that allows you, allows us to defend ourselves. And you say, well, what about that place down in verse 11, I guess, where it says both little children and women? Well, that's really controversial in the Hebrew. And why it's controversial is in some of our translations, it seems to say that it's allowing the Jews to kill the women and children. But in some other translations, because they're not 100% sure, it seems to me mean that the Jewish women and children are going to be saved because you're going to be protecting them. Get what I'm saying? So there's a split of authority in the translation with that verse right there. But even if it is, what's God doing? He's setting up self-defense. That's what he's setting up. A copy of the document is issued as a decree in every province. Why am I re-going through this? Because it's a really interesting principle, folks. You see, the Bible tells us that everything that's in the Old Testament really happened. Do you all agree that? Well, we agree that here. <laughs> it really happened. Some churches don't believe that, by the way. 
Some think it's literal or figurative or whatever. No, we believe the first 11 chapters of the Bible happened. Really, they happened. Okay. But the Old Testament tells us these things really happened, but they're also pictures and types of something that we need to know. And when you read this at first glance, you must be saying to yourself, I do. Why can't he just make the decree to just cancel out the first law? And here he's setting you up for a big picture. And it's one of the reasons we're going to take communion tonight. And here's the picture. Some of us think of Haman, the enemy, as either Satan or the flesh, right? And then we start to think, well, if Haman's out of the way, everything's fantastic. But there's still a decree in place. Now, if you examine what's true of us, think about this. Our enemy's out of the way, but we still must deal with, we're subject to, listen to this, the righteous decree of God. And you know what the decree is? You find it in Ezekiel 18, verse 4. And the decree is this. In our sins, we have an enemy, and this is it. The soul that sins surely shall die. Even if God removed our enemy from us, there's still the decree from God. The soul that sins surely shall die. Now let me take you so I can show this to you in the New Testament. Turn over to Romans 8. Here's a parenthetical, by the way. You can take this if you want it. Uh, You don't have to uh, think this. You can argue with me about this. This is something just free of charge, has nothing to do with the teaching. I think there's four or five chapters of the Bible. If you learn them and study them, it unlocks the Bible. And Romans 8 is one of them. I also think 2 Corinthians 5 is one of those. And I also think Philippians 2 is one of those. And I also think 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those. If somebody comes to me and they're a new Christian and they say, oh, what should I read? I try to give them one of those. Romans 8 covers so many topics, but look at this in terms of what we're ready to talk about. Romans 8 says this, uh, in verse 2, uh, well, I'll read verse 1. There is therefore now, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Here it comes. See, even if the enemy was out of our life, look at this, there's still a decree, and here comes the decree. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me f- free from What? The law of sin, and what, what does sin lead to? The law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. There is a law in force against us. It's the law of sin and death. The soul that sins surely shall die. Oh, man, I say that seven times real fast. And the wages of sin, in uh, uh, Romans six twenty three. you know this, is death. There's still a law in force. But through Jesus' death... There's another law put into effect. Folks, this is so important to know. Through Jesus' death, there's another law that's put into effect. Listen, just like Esther. 
There's another law. It's right there in chapter, verse 2 itself. There's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There's the law of death and sin, but there's a law of the spirit of life. Listen to how Warren Wearsby says it. Nobody could say it any better than this, folks, so I'm not even going to try. God obeyed the law of sin and death when he gave his son Jesus to bear our sins and to die on the cross. But then God raised him from the dead and put a new decree into effect that makes it possible for sinners to be saved. Now he wants to put that good news into every tongue and take that good news to every nation. Warren Wearsby. Did you catch that? You read through Esther 8 and you kind of just scratch your head. What? Why can't you just? And it's a picture for us of the law that's in effect and the law that uh, Jesus uh, uh, comes uh, behind and counteracts. Now listen, there's this fantastic verse and you're never going to look at this verse ever in your life the same, ever. I guarantee it. It's in chapter 3 of Romans. And I don't know where it is, so I'm going to quickly scan it. <laughs> I think it's in 23. No, it's not there, but it's going to be in this general area. Yep, here it is. I got it. Listen to this. Romans 3, verse 26 he talks about the righteousness of God apart from the law and that righteousness is God in God or of God is through faith in Jesus Christ and at the end of this he says something unbelievably amazing to demonstrate verse 26 at the present time his righteousness listen to this now you're never going to look at this verse ever the same that he might be both i put both in there just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. See, folks, that's why we sing right there. There's a law in effect, and the law is, if you're a sinner, you must die. And Jesus comes. He can't counteract the justice of God. But God in his infinite wisdom and plan said, no, man, I can't counteract that or I wouldn't be just. So we'll send Jesus, and he'll take the punishment and then justify the people so that God can be both the just and the justifier. See, that's incredible. That's why you get out of bed in the morning right there. When you recognize your sin, my sin, our sin, how lost we are without Jesus, how we have sinned against God in so many ways that I know I have. That he could both keep his just decree against me that you, if you've sinned, shall die, but also swoop in with his son and be the justifier himself so that I don't have to justify myself in any way spiritually. I just rest in all that God has done for me. Oh. Esther. You notice back in Esther, just like Haman got the word out quick, Mordecai had this amazing system, folks. Amazing system to get the word out. Do you see, the, do I hardly even have to say what we should be doing? I don't know if it needs to be complex or not. 
I don't know if uh, we have to set up, uh, you know, uh, people over there, but the Lord does it. But we should be getting the word out about this very topic. He's both the just one. We'll die in our sins unless we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. But if we do, he's both the just and the justifier. Wow. Well, you go back to Esther. (laughs) Don't uh, forget about the rest of the verse or the verses. I got to get back there. There's something still, something so amazing right here on the horizon. You know they all go all into the provinces. They give out all the copies of this decree that Mordecai had stamped with the signet ring. And verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold. And we could go on and do a sermon. You've got to know that in order to go to heaven, you have to be in the right clothes. True? And the right clothes are the righteous robes that he clothes you with in salvation. They're talked about in Isaiah 61. You put off the old man. You put on the new. That speaks of clothes. And, and that's what we need. We must be clothed with the righteousness that comes from him through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I don't have to work my way to heaven. He imputes to me his righteousness because my sins were imputed to him at the cross. Man, that's something to cheer about. So he's in the right clothes and he's, or the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every providence, in every city, wherever the king's command and decree came, listen to this, the, joy, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Uh, I want you to know something. There's still a fight to be had. You, you, you see that? There's still a fight that needs to go on, a battle. But they're really happy because now... There's a way, there's a path, which speaks to us. Just because you come into the family of God, which we're going to talk about here next, and I don't think I'm going to get through Esther, so Job will be in two weeks. Just because we come into the family of God doesn't mean there's still not a fight. In fact, if you want to go see, just go back to the book of Joshua. They were supposed to clean out everybody, but not everybody was cleaned out. And they were to go into the land, and they still had to fight those skirmishes to clean out the land so that they could come fully into the promised land. But they failed to do it, so they didn't live victoriously. Here, they're happy because they know there's a way. But there's still a battle. Now look at this. Then many of the people of the land became Jews. Medo-Persians became Jews because there was this fear of the Jews that fell upon them. And I don't have a lot of time to go in, but if you could look in the Old Testament, there's several examples of the fear of the Lord coming upon people and his purposes getting done. And one of the things that we see from there, what do we see right here? You guys think it through. God says the way to escape judgment is to come into the family of God. Yeah, okay is right. Light bulb goes on, right? How do we escape judgment here in chapter 8? Remember, these are real things. They really happen. They show us a picture of what a a New Testament principle. Here, many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. What's that say? 
How do we escape judgment? We get linked to the family of God. We get linked up to the family of God. And what's interesting about it is, well, how is the family, look at this, look at this. Oh, this is so beautiful. If you'll pay attention here, I think this will revolutionize your, your walk. Because isn't the same law in effect for the family of God that there's a decree that says you're going to die, just like in the New Testament principle? And is, are, you, are you tracking with me still? But what is the thing or the person that the Jews had that the Medo-Persians didn't? There was an intercessor. Here's Esther going to the king, falling on her face. I mean, giving up it all, right? All her, if you wanted to say dignity, she's not. She is dignified. She's bowing in humility in a beautiful way. But she doesn't care anymore about the makeup and the hair and the high heels and the stuff that, no, no, no. Now a condemned people are condemned. And the only thing that matters to her is to fall on her face before the king to save the people. And if anybody, not just the Jews, link up into the family, they get saved too. It's a picture of what's happened for us. Lest we ever forget it, Jesus Christ is not only the perfect sacrifice, he's also our great high priest, and he liveth to intercede on our behalf. And as I say, what is he interceding for? He's not saying, oh my gosh, did you, Lord, did you see Tim today? I mean, I'm going to have to pray extra hard because he, he goofed bad. You, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, here's my hands and my feet, and you know that I died, and you rose me from the dead, and here I am. There's one mediator between God and man. That's me. Lord, I've paved the way. Tim can come in. And now Tim, not on his own merit, but by the blood of Christ, can come boldly before the throne room of God to obtain mercy and grace. And I can do it, and I don't mean it flippantly, but I can do it anytime I need to or want to because of the blood of Jesus. That's how effective it is. I don't have to traipse down to the temple with my goat in hand or my pigeon in hand or my whatever in hand, right? I don't have to do that anymore. It's the sacrifice because of the intercession, my interceder, the mediator between God and man. It's pictured here. I can come. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. We're in the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ as we receive and count on him for all of our spiritual and everything else needs. Isn't that beautiful? All right, hold on here. You get mad at me for going fast, I know. But in the 12th month, verse 9, or chapter 9, this is the month of Adar. Maybe we will have time. Uh Uh-oh. The time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. He gives the whole rest of the book away right there. It's over. He tells us what happened, but he goes on to explain some of the details. 
The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asarius to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus, the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with the slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. You say, well, wait a minute. They killed 500 men. That's kind of ucky. You know what's really ucky? Is that a word? You know what's really ucky? Is that 500 men were, despite the new law, were re- there ready to pounce on the Jewish people. That's what's ucky. It's demonic. It's hatred. So also, verse 7, Parshadantha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, etc., etc., etc. I can't say it. Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman. In other words, finally, 1 Samuel 15 has come to pass. God's word will come to pass. He asked them, Saul, to... Get rid of the Agagites or the Amalekites. And here now, after the whole of their treasure has been given over, and now Haman has died on the gallows, now the ten sons of Haman are dead. And they didn't lay a hand on the plunder. Did you catch that? The Jewish folks didn't grab the spoil. They were doing what they were supposed to do as divine instruments of justice. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. They wanted a complete victory. There was to be no question this time. Folks, they knew about Saul and how Saul had not done this, not done what God had asked. So the king commanded, verse 14, this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan. And they hanged Haman's 10 sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they didn't lay a hand on the plunder. Again, there's still more people who are ready to pounce on the Jews. So they are in self-defense. And the remainder of them, verse 16, gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. They're said to be several, several, several million people. And the sick part is there's 75,000 that still want to attack the Jews. But they don't lay a hand on the plunder. And this was on the 13th day of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made a day of feasting. But the Jews, oh, oh, we have to keep going. What am I talking about? We couldn't get to this. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th and on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another, right? And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all Jews 
near and far, might be an allusion, I won't go into it tonight, to Isaiah 57, 19, you read that, who were in the provinces of this king to establish among them that they would celebrate this 14th and 15th of the month of Adar as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy and from mourning to holiday, and they still do this. They just did it about a month ago. Over in Israel and other places where there's Jewish people, they celebrate Purim, which means cast lots, because we saw that earlier in the uh, chapter. Pure. And, and they dress up. It's kind of like a April foolish, Halloween y kind of thing. And they dress up and they read this book and they stamp their feet and yell when Haman's name is mentioned and Haman's sons. And so this still goes on, and they make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And what's funny about this, and you could keep reading, uh, so the Jews accepted the custom, as Mordecai had written, verse 24, because Haman of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy who had plotted against the Jews, had cast pure, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them, verse 25, but when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he as his son should be hanged on the gallows. I tried to get through that fast because I want you to see something. God's never mentioned there. (laughs) Which is interesting. And so the question becomes, you know, like, should we celebrate holidays that there's no mention of Christ? But here's the deal, folks. Even though God's not mentioned here, it's in his word. And he said, make it a memorial. And when you make it a memorial, what do you do? You can always bring it back to the Lord. And here they certainly could, because what is the picture of Esther? What's the theme of Esther? God is in the shadows, so to speak. Even when you don't know that he's working, he is working. So it goes along with the theme of Esther. You say, man, should I have a Christmas tree or shouldn't I have a Christmas tree? I don't know. Here's what we do. Get red lights. I mean, get white lights and red bulbs and know that God created the trees. And then he came to the earth to wipe away our red sins and to make them white as snow. And you've just turned any holiday, anything back to the Lord. Probably get some emails about that. So they called these days Purim after the name Pure. And therefore, because of all the words of this letter, verse 26, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed times that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed. They could speak and celebrate of the deliverance of God, just like the Passover just like the Feast of Tabernacles. And what are we to do? The Lord says, man, when you come together and you're taking of the bread and the wine at that time, the juice now, don't forget or remember me, my death. Listen to this, folks. 
something that was written all these years ago. God takes it and says, man, even when you don't see me, I'm working. Even when you think everything's lost, my purposes are going to get done. Even if you can't sleep, I've got a purpose in it. Even if you don't know what book to pick off the shelf, I've got a purpose in it. I'll use every one of your choices. I can use every one of your choices, God says, the good and the bad, and I'm going to work it out for good to those who love the Lord according to his purposes. Isn't that beautiful? And here he just says, now celebrate that. Celebrate that. So what we're going to do after I finish this is we're going to have Brianna and the, maybe just Brianna, who else? Oh, is Madeline. Yeah, just maybe Brianna. And she's going to lead us in a song, and we've put communion cups back there. They're the kind you peel back, so forgive us. Be merciful and gracious to us because they're hard to get open. But what we want you to do is, after we get done right here, we want you to go back, grab a cup, come stand where you're going to stand, sing the rest of the song out to the Lord, and listen. Celebrate his death. There was a decree of justice that had to be paid. God couldn't just say, ah, forget about that thing, like many of us parents do with our kids. He said, no, that justice has to be dealt with, has to be meted out, dished out. But oh, we can bring in the second decree. We'll bring in my son, Jesus Christ, to bear the burdens on the cross, your burdens, my burdens, our sins, and to put them away forever, he'll remember them no more, to die and to rise again, to give us new life. Listen, folks, it's the great reversal. It's just like this book. Well, let me finish it out. Verse 29, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces uh, of Asuherius, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So, the decree, verse 32, of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book, and King Osirius imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea, and now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Mede and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Osirius, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren." seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now, two things before we close. I want you to notice something. You know that the Lord is the author and finisher of our faith, but right there in that same section of Scripture, it also says that we're to work out our faith or salvation with fear and trembling. So which is it? Is it God doing it, or do we do it? And the answer is yes. And you see it right here in this book. He brought them right up to a relationship with him. They're saved from judgment, but they still had to do battle. And Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that our battle now, here on this side of the cross, isn't this. Kill, convert, or die. That's not our battle. Our battle's on our knees. Our weapons of warfare is praise, prayer, 
sharing, loving, forgiving, understanding, rightly dividing the word. That's lesson number one. Here's lesson number two. When all was said and done in the book of Esther, the evil king, or I shouldn't say evil, the pagan king still remained. So while they had peace here, there wasn't any real lasting peace until Jesus came. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you have peace with God, Romans 5 tells us. Now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Ephesians 2, you can go read it. For those who are afar off, we've been brought close. But even now, of course, his salvation, wonderful. But there's still, we're still looking for peace on earth. It's not here yet. Have you watched the news lately? The peace is in here. But there's coming a day when Jesus comes back to the earth and judges righteously and will establish peace. And we have that to look forward to. So we're going to ask them to come up. They're going to sing a song, lead us in a song. As you bow your head and you feel led, just go get yourself a cup as we're singing. And then I'm going to come back up here. We're going to do communion and we'll all leave out of here refreshed and blessed, right? All right. God bless you.
Wow. The just and the justifier. <laughs> Amazing. You know that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. Can you believe he gave thanks? Shoo. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Go ahead and take of the bread. So he took a cup after supper. <laughs> and he established this new covenant of grace, didn't he? Written in blood, not blue ink, not black ink. He didn't write that contract in those things. He wrote it in blood. The covenant of grace. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Go ahead and take of the juice. Lord, and as we finish out here, just our time here, Lord, we're so thankful you're never finished with us. We are thankful you said it is finished at the cross. But you're still molding and shaping us, and we want to participate in that. We want to cooperate in that, Lord. As you are the author and finisher of our faith, Lord, help us to learn how to work this salvation out with fear and trembling. Lord, make us more like Jesus. We need supernatural love and forgiveness and strength and courage and tenderness and humility and truth and so many other things. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.